to Liars Lee, where writers write, actors read, audience listens, and everybody wins. Before I discovered the League, I was a sad, lonely individual. And now look at me. <laughs> Be that as it may, tonight we celebrate the ultimate narrative arc. The transition from before to after. We'll have six epic stories of change. Three in the prologue, three in the epilogue, and sandwiched in between the interval and the infamous Lively book quiz. We were hoping, by now, to bring you some sort of resolution to the political debacle that besets our weary nation. But alas, some things don't have a before and after. They just have a during that goes on forever and ever and ever. Anyway, with good company and drink and top entertainment, we can, I'm sure, endure most things. Except the unwanted interruption of a ringtone or a message beep. So, please, turn your phones off or to silence before we begin. Our first story of the evening will be Namaste Bitches by Anna Surya, read by Kelly Wolfe. Anna is a student of Literary Kitchen. She has previously been shortlisted for the TSS Publishing Winter Fiction Prize. And her story comes with a content warning. For strong language, sexual references, and online impulse shopping. Kelly is an American poet, performer, journalist, and activist. She performs as Coco Millay with London Poetry Brothel, and she's also founded the Little Versed Poetry Collective, produces and hosts the Propaganda Poetry Radio Series, and is poet-in-residence at Cabaret at Caramel, where she creates monthly events. Kelly! Namaste, bitches by Anna Soria. Casper was always trying to fix me. He left flyers for divination therapy and female-only fasting retreats tucked inside my boxes of sugary cereal. My inbox was clogged with emails from him linking me to articles with titles like How I Overcame My Rage with Quartz Rose. Casper had a well-paid job at an architecture film, wore Japanese knitwear, and owned a kitchen appliance for every eventuality. I was five stone overweight and had recently been fired. For the past week, I had been pretending to get ready for work, waiting for Casper to leave, then ordering takeaway falafel and masturbating on his Egyptian cotton bedsheets. I watched so much porn that the people on screen became irrelevant, reduced to a series of plucked and greasy orifices positioned in increasingly ridiculous poses. 
spent my days with numb fingers chasing those fleeting seconds that gave me an escape from the tightness in my chest. I'm gonna buy sous vide, Casper said. I checked the time on my phone. It was 3.30 a.m. Friday. Deanna, Casper said. Amazon said it will cook a steak to Michelin star standard. I put an ergonomic pillow over my face, hoping the pressure of it would send me back to sleep. Casper read the reviews out loud. I bought a sous vide for my wife, and we are like newlyweds again. The sex has never been better. Five stars. The pillow over my face was too light to crush me back into sleep. Should Puppy buy it? Casper said, using the cutesy nickname he had given himself. I counted my breaths and tried to remember why we were together. I felt his body shake as he cried silently next to me. I'm going to buy it. It will be good for us. We can do the paleo diet. I slept with the pillow over my face, and when I woke up, there was a lump above my eye. Your late night shopping is making me break out, I said, watching as Casper packed slices of lean turkey into my lunchbox. I went to the bathroom and ran the shower until I was sure Casper had left for work. Then I set myself up on the sofa with a bowl of microwave custard, flicking between porn and reality shows on my laptop. At lunchtime, I heard the jingle of keys outside the front door. I ran to the kitchen and held my face under the hot tap until my cheeks were bright red. Uh, work sent me home. I think it's the flu, I said, or uh, maybe allergies. I pointed at the tender swelling on my forehead. Casper didn't notice. He was too busy fussing with a plastic carrying case with a grill in one end. What's that? I asked. Our new baby. Aren't you our new baby? He cooed as he lifted a gnarled, pinky gray creature out of the box. It looks like a dinosaur. It's a hairless cat. It's really fashionable right now. Nina Dunham has one. Casper lowered the animal onto the sofa where it haunched, motionless. I touched a hand to his exposed spine. Feels greasy. Casper went out into the hall and returned with a one kilo bag of Ayurvedic cat food. I poked absently at the lump. It seemed to be growing by the minute and the skin around it felt hot. Does my head look weird to you? It's probably a buildup of bad energy. You should try my crystal yoga class. Casper pulled on a pair of running shoes and started jogging on the spot. I need to get back to the office. Can you keep an eye on her? I looked down at the cat. Its hairless paws were like old ladies' hands. Her name's Wee Wee, Wee Wee Walnut, Wee Wee for short. 
Casper shouted, slamming the front door behind him. Wee Wee took a few tentative steps across the table and vomited onto the keyboard of my laptop. Six months previously, Casper had persuaded his friend Jono to give me a job at his digital marketing agency, Rogue Animal. One of my few responsibilities had been maintaining the office cell phones, making sure employees didn't go over their call allowances and sending them for repair. All the devices were synced to a Dropbox on the office servers. So, with nothing to do, I spent my days spying on Jono's phone, which contained evidence of his mundane infidelities and his far less mundane tastes in pornography. The day I got fired, I'd been out shopping all day for a birthday present for Jono's daughter. I was wearing a mini skirt and my thighs were chafing because I'd left my panties in the sink soaking in period blood and office issued hand wash. Jono was driving past just as I was getting back to the office. Liana, can I have a word? Jono rolled down the window of his smart car and motioned for me to get in. I climbed into the passenger seat. My thighs swallowed half the gear stick on which Jono was resting his hand. You've been spying on my phone. He slid his seat back a few notches and spread his legs. He was wearing very tight trousers. Kind of a turn on, to be honest. He put his hand on the back of my headrest. You know, I've always wanted to fuck a fat girl. I stared at the carpet and the footwell. There were strings of used dental floss trapped in the black fibers of the rug. I felt myself getting smaller and smaller until I was a tiny kernel rattling around inside a flesh shell. The heat from my face had started to steam up the windows. Jono laughed and told me to get the fuck out of his car. I came up with the plan as I was clearing out my desk. I downloaded the Dropbox folder onto my personal laptop, and all I had to do was wait until the dust settled, then tweet a few pictures from the rogue animal account that would let the world know about Jono's taste for breast milk. By Friday afternoon, the lump on my head was getting steadily more painful I lay on the sofa with my eyes half closed, watching loose women with the sound down. Wee Wee had spent most of the day shredding Casper's knitwear. Occasionally, I'd catch her shrunken face looking up at me. She reminded me of one of those sad toys you see abandoned on the street. By early evening, she had softened and curled up next to me on the sofa. Although I had to arrange the throw cushions exactly to her liking, otherwise she would stop off and piss in the reading nook. Casper got home at six and immediately began cleaning the cat sick from my laptop. Loved a project. I flicked my phone to selfie mode and examined the lump. 
yet had grown a distinctive white head. I heard the chime of my laptop coming back to life, then Casper's voice from across the room. You masturbate more than is normal for a woman. He had clearly discovered my search history. I picked up a turquoise business card from the coffee table. I'm going to yoga, I said, putting on my coat. And stop wanking on the kitchen surfaces. My parents are coming over for steak tomorrow. When I arrived at the yoga studio, the class was full with glossy-haired women who looked like they were about to shoot a music video. I realized that underneath my coat, I was still wearing my pajamas. I turned to leave, but the teacher spotted me and waved me over. She wore one of those sports bras with the words, Namaste, bitches, printed on it. My name is Meridian. I'll be your guide this evening, Meridian said and directed me to a free mat at the front. I glanced at myself in the mirrored wall. The lump on my head had grown to the size of an apricot. Meridian had begun to direct the class through the poses. My tit fell out in the first downward dog. Ten minutes in and my hands were so sweaty that it was impossible to get any purchase on the mat. And I could feel the blood pulsing inside of the lump. I gave up and adopted the rest position, lying on my stomach with my face turned to the right so as not to put pressure on my forehead. I felt my phone vibrate in my pocket. It was a message from Casper. We spiffed in your laptop and found the filth you were trying to pin on Jono. Why do you hate everyone who is more successful than you? I've deleted everything. At that moment, Meridian padded over. Cell phone signals cause energetic discharge. She pulled the phone from my hand and switched it off. Then she took a crystal in each hand and pushed them into my shoulders, forcing me into a kneeling position. Repeat after me. Um, she said, sitting down opposite me, her delicate mouth open, eyes closed. I felt something rush up from deep inside my guts gathering momentum as it moved through my body. When it reached my chest, instead of a gentle ohm, a scream ripped through my throat, and I felt something release. I opened my eyes and Meridian was staring back at me, body frozen, lumps of pus dripping from her glossy hair. When I got back to the flat, Casper was lying on the sofa, the remains of dinner congealing on the table. I looked around for the cat, but she was nowhere to be found. Where's Wee Wee? I asked. I returned her, Casper relied stonily. 
She scratched up the seat in my Eames chair. I pressed the sleeve of my jumper to my forehead, which had almost returned to normal. Returned her to the breeders? I was surprised at the volume of my voice. Breeders don't do refunds, so I left her outside the cat shelter, Casper said, getting up off the sofa. It's Friday night. The shelter doesn't open again until Monday morning. She'll be fine. I left her her favorite cashmere jumper. <laughs> I listened to the sound of a sheepskin moccasins schlep across the floor to the bedroom. It was late by the time I got to the cat shelter. When I rounded the corner, I could see Wee Wee's carrying case sitting outside the front door. The grill in the front of the, her carrier was open. I imagined her small body being passed around by drunken students. Breaking into a run, I reached the box and peered inside. It smelled strongly of sick. As my eyes adjusted to the darkness, I saw Wee Wee crouching at the back, shivering. I lifted her out and she hissed, gouging at my arms with her claws. I tucked her underneath my coat and held her against my chest. She looked up at me angrily, as though a lifetime of insults were held in each fold of her puckered skin. I took a deep breath, and for the first time in years, there was no tightness in my chest. I wasn't angry. I was tired. Tired of being a broken thing that needed to be fixed. Tired of eating nicely in small bites. Tired of talking quietly in public. Tired of having to hold my breath stuck in my stomach, bite my tongue so that everyone else would have an easier time ignoring my existence. I sat on the pavement outside the cat shelter, resting my head against the glass door. Wee Wee had begun to purr against my chest like a tiny engine. I noticed a handwritten sign inside the window of the shelter. Volunteers needed must like cats. I took down the number, smiling to myself. Namaste, bitches. Thank you. Thank you. story of the evening will be No East or West by Mark Sadler, be read by Silas Hawkins. Mark lives in Southend-on-Sea with a chameleon called Frederick. His short stories have recently appeared in the Gasling and Lip Break magazine, as well as Lies League in London, New York and Hong Kong. He's writing a long novel that explores the conflicts arising between paganism and contemporary civil engineering. Silas continues the family voiceover tradition 
meets the son of Peter Dalek Hawkins and Rosemary Emergency Ward 10 Miller. His favourite voice credits include Somerton Mill, Latin Music USA, and Podcast for the Rest. Silas! No East or West by Mark Saddle. I strongly believe it was not a unification. A unification is born of diplomacy and compromise. What happened in East Germany was a defeat, followed by surrender to a conquering imperialist power. The wall dividing the city of Berlin was pulled away in pieces. Hands that were preconditioned to taking what they want, what they wanted, disregarding any greater good, reached through gaps in the barrier to plunder our resources. The night it happened, I witnessed a procession of tractors from our side disappearing forever through one of the checkpoints in a, a cloud of deafening music and smoke. In those times, when the East was still the East, I was happier and thinner. Now I'm miserable and I don't know the reason. The, the hairy slouch of my belly disgusts me. Oh, I remember with fondness the Christian service at St. Gebhard. We were not permitted to worship in the church, only in the hall. The words of the hymns were divested of any subversive content that might stir dissent. Some were censored to such a degree they were reduced to long passages of repetitive music punctuated by the occasional reference to Jesus. <laughs> you laughed, well, you might have laughed. And it's true... It was ridiculous. But with fewer words, there was more opportunity for reflection. I sang them on the way home, my voice rebounding back at me from the floodlit rampart nearby that held the forces of capitalism at bay. Oh, there's a barricade gone so too has the echo that reaffirmed my faith. The words to the hymns have been restored. And yet, they are strangely diminished. I miss the silhouetted landmark of Contraband Hill, a mound of blue jeans slowly being turned into fertilizer for the garden. They do not talk about the gardens of the East. They pretend it was all concrete and barbed wire. The flowers that were selected by committee and planted in arrangements formally agreed upon by yet more committees gave up their nectar to bees who made their homes in cavities inside the wall. The East always had the best honey. I know a man called uh, Tesma, who worked as a border guard. He could hear the muted hum of the beehives in the concrete 
He said it was like listening to a radio through a wall. After a while, he and his comrades began to hear patterns, words forming in the drone. He remains convinced that he heard the bees instructing the men to stand down, to throw open the gates, to tear down the wall. I told him, in more rational times, you would have been shot for such madness. What benefit is it to the insect colonies to be smoked out in swarms? The crust of their home set ablaze, uh, the remnants caked in graffiti. Two years after the fall of East Germany, I crept onto a building site under cover of darkness. I, I filled a stolen wheelbarrow with a quantity of bricks and powdered cement. In a secluded area where the old wall once stood, I constructed my own small barrier. Others, independently of myself, had formed the same idea. Our unimposing walls built piecemeal along the foundation of the old, the placeholders for more permanent fortification that might one day return. I once saw a fellow builder emerge from the dead of night with a wheelbarrow of cement. We nodded at each other, a pair of ghosts haunting the ruins. Before Christmas, I ran into Coyotes, who is uh, former secret police. Now, I do not know how he makes his living. He asked me, Do you recall the stables? It was a hotel where they took prisoners for interrogation. Ah, it is gone, I said. There's only rubble now and waste ground. They rebuilt it in South Africa. Now, oh, it's going to Brandenburg under the sun. It is exactly the same, even the carpets and the wallpaper. Oh, the staff there are so rude and unhelpful. <laughs> if you could not see the palm trees from the window, you would think it was East Berlin. They even have a piece of the old wall there. It's on a barge in the harbor. But eventually, I think it will stand again in the grounds. I will return there soon for six months. You should go to old friend. It will cheer your gloomy disposition. To pay for the trip, I sold some possessions. My um, Stitchkin automatic pistol. The wooden shoulder stock is over twice the length of the gun. I, I was using it as a doorstop. The hotel is high on the cliffs set amongst gardens, <coughs> surrounded by a wall, like, <coughs> like the old wall in Berlin in silhouette, but thin and made of bricks like a theater backdrop. At the foot of the cliffs, by the beach, there is a large Western-style hotel. It was only a few days before I realized that both hotels were part of the same site, each for different types of guests. The section of the original Berlin Wall was no longer on the barge. It had been sunk offshore 
where it had become a foundation for a coral reef. Govinda, one of the hotel workers, told me that a condition of the purchase from Germany was that the wall should not stand again on dry land. Yeah. I realized then it was not enough for our enemies that the barricade be torn down. The, 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 the wall was a jigsaw puzzle that had been broken up. The pieces torn into smaller pieces and scattered far and wide so they could never be gathered and reassembled. Nonetheless, the idea of it remains. A lot of former East Germans who guarded the wall came to die on the new reef, said Govinda. Soon it will be covered in coral. If you go now, you will see some of the original shape. It, it may be possible to go inside one of the towers. I did my scuba diving training in one of the outdoor pools at the Western Hotel. There were five others with me, all Americans. A red-haired woman informed me she had distant family in Germany. She asked me where in the country I came from. I told her, from East Berlin. She put her hand on my arm and regarded me with affected sincerity. I watched the world come down on TV. I sat on the couch holding hands with my daughter. We were both in tears. Walking back towards the cliff stairs, I encountered Koylitz. He was reclining on a sun lounger next to a guitar-shaped swimming pool that was crowded with families and children. A bent plastic straw planted in the melting ice of a garish cocktail was being blown around in the warm breeze like a weather vane. I have not seen you at the Brandenburg. What is your room number? I asked him. Ah, I have defected to this hotel. It was the cold showers that did it for me. Ah, I'm too old and soft in the body. He beckoned me to lean in closer. I require a favor. There is a, a maid who has been moved to the Brandenburg. They send the staff there who are miserable or rude to the guests. Her only crime is that her grandfather died. She loved him very much. Now she cries all the time. I need you to help get her reinstated in this hotel. I miss her singing as she cleans my room. She is a young girl. And sweet, like a Holstein apple. But, but, but how can I manage this? Tell the manager that she smiles too much. Her disposition is too cheery for East Berlin. I did not judge Coilitz. We were both residents in a theme park. An approach had been found to capitalize upon my yearning to return to an old way of living. Some of the bees from Berlin traveled with the ruins of war to South Africa. Their descendants had established colonies in the grounds of the Brandenburg. I watched one from my first floor window, a black speck meandering over the flower beds. On the horizon, the sparkling blue sea 
join seamlessly to the sky. The staff harvests the honey to serve at breakfast, but it tastes different. I, I, I told the woman at reception, the honey here is not authentic. You must plant in the gardens only these flowers in the following arrangements. I, uh, I passed a, a, a paper napkin where I'd written down the details. Later that day, I saw it discarded in an otherwise empty waste paper basket next to the desk. I returned to Berlin in February. In my absence, a group of Western anarchists had mobilized to relocate the walls that had been built by myself and others. They had a website with a map showing the original position of the barriers along the line of the old wall on the new locations. Their leader, Jonas Klein, a former circus performer, had become a local celebrity. One night, when I was building, I felt eyes on me. Then I turned. He was standing there. The old man called Gorbert? He asked. Yes. I'm going to take your ball from here when it is finished. I will move it to a different part of the city. I've already made a place for it. I have an artist who will paint a mural on it. One day, I will build a house from your wall. Why will you not leave me alone and respect my work? Ah, I will be dead soon, and what happens to my boys afterwards will not trouble me. Because you are building walls in a place where the city decided there should be none, and because they are good walls, constructed to a high standard, why should we not use them elsewhere, and not as barriers or relics of a world which has passed? What was better in the East when the city was divided? Name me one thing. The, the honey was better. Pa! Uh, 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 knives, forks, and spoons were made from heavier metal. They were better quality. Now everyone wants to buy them. Yeah, I, I sold mine to pay for a holiday. Like a true capitalist. Oh, it's a game to you all this. To me, it is work, an expression of my politics. I swatted at him with my shovel. He dodged away with just his upper body. Aha, I was in the circus. You cannot hit me, old man. At home, I stared at the map on the computer. My walls dragged out of alignment in the new setting, spray-painted with banal slogans. Wrapped in oilcloth in my desk drawer, there is a, a grenade on the wall. I thought aloud how I would set it so that it went off when my wall was disturbed. <laughs> I pictured Klein's face the moment before it detonated. Would he attempt? to dodge the explosion. In the blurred corner of my fury, 
Something on the map caught my eye. Uh, a pattern taking shape. Two walls close to each other. If I were to extend it, they would join to form a corner. Well, there were two others nearby that could be connected in a similar way. <coughs> if they were all linked, they would form the side of a building. I zoomed out. Everywhere on the map there were similar patterns. A sketch of a foundation for a new city that was neither East nor West Berlin, created jointly by enemies, unaware. They were collaborators. If it is not a foundation, then perhaps it is the beginnings of a maze that we must build in tandem and then find our way through together. The worker bee is part of a collective. It does not know the grand design that is brought into existence by its efforts. Yet it moves blindly, driven by instinct or programming towards some greater purpose. Our third story, and the last one before the interval, will be Counterfection by Tim Aldrich, read by Tim Larkin. Tim leads a double life as regulator of doctors by day and occasional author by night. His last Lies League story was read at the very first event, written under a pseudonym. Since then, he has hosted, performed a couple of stories, and remains proudly alive. The other Tim trained at the Paul School. He regularly performs with improv group Three Worlds. He's worked at the BBC as a broadcast journalist. Recent credits include We Are Here for the National Theatre and a Nazi officer in low-budget horror movie Werewolves of the Third Reich. <laughs> Tim! Counterfiction by Tim Aldrich. Dear Mr. Aldrich, thank you for the submission of your short story Led by Donkeys to Counterfiction magazine. I can speak not only as editor of our august periodical, but for each of the judging panel in welcoming the appearance of your unique voice to the world of counterfactual speculative fiction. There was much debate, and one might even say passion, around the table as we discussed your work. So engaged, indeed, were the judges that they have shared some detailed feedback, which I copy below. I would start, however, by thanking you for not setting your story within one of the now very tired scenarios, such as John F. Kennedy surviving his trip to Dallas in 1963, the success of Hitler and Nazi Germany against the Allies after 1944, and, curiously, had the People's Princess not taken that ill-fated journey to Paris. 
In contrast, your tale felt fresh, imaginative, and very contemporary. The absence of airships alone made my day. <laughs> However, we have some changes that we suggest you consider. One, your pivot point, after which history changes. It is a bold choice to take an esteemed and successful politician as your narrator and reimagine them as a tragic failure and, we really like this device, a podcaster. Your narrative voice is strong and recognisable. We love the use of his well-known catchphrases, I say unto you, and I do say now. We just didn't buy the point at which you pivot on history. Everyone enjoys a good bit of the hinge factor now and then, but seriously, the inept eating of a bacon sandwich? Our panel just couldn't swallow it. We wonder whether it might be stronger in instead if Lord Miliband has an affair with one of his special advisers, or is inadvertently linked with the Blair North Korea bribery scandal. Two, following directly from one, and we see what you've done here, taking a fairly obscure and marginalised politician like Jeremy Corbyn and thrusting him centre stage as leader of the Labour Party. One of our judging panel is a long-standing professor of political science and she confirmed what we all felt in that it stretches credulity too far. <laughs> as you'll no doubt have read in our letters section on more than one occasion, it is a fine line between the plausible and the implausible but this is the point at which willing suspension of disbelief becomes a shake of the head. <laughs> Given that there are few, if any, Labour politicians less likely than Corbyn to succeed, could you perhaps consider another? Chuka Amuna comes to mind. Just a thought. Three, referring to my point about Princess Diana above, and gosh, isn't she still a popular topic, the Meghan Markle-Prince Harry subplot is a bit twee, No? You've given the new princess a nice name and an intriguing backstory, but perhaps a real person would be stronger. Alternative suggestions from the panel included Chelsea Clinton, Courtney Kardashian, and Chloe from Geordie Shaw. One panellist wondered if you might not have left this as history intended, as it were, and instead given the bisexual theme more prominence. Four, the US references. While you clearly intended the mention of President Donald Trump as an offhand gag, we thought this distracted from some of the more fascinating ideas you were exploring around the so-called special relationship. And to be honest, we couldn't quite make the leap from the Lord Miliband and the bacon sandwich incident to Jeb Bush losing the Republican Party primary. Can you perhaps remove? This may also tackle the word count issue. 2,000 words is, after all, our maximum limit and not a vague aspiration however much you might wish it to be. Five, your denouement. You clearly have a dim view of our political class. Theresa May's character seems colourless, one-dimensional, and, well, frankly, at times, just nasty. <laughs> As our political scientist colleague adroitly noted, wasn't this the woman who took on and challenged the Tories to address their reputation as the nasty party? Go back to your recent history, young man. Moreover, the depiction of her as the, what did you call her, uh, Maybot, seems a bit flat. Just a thought, but how about giving her some love interest? I can see her discovering untold passions with her counterpart, the dashing Michelle Barnier, or, or possibly the speaker, John Burko. 
<laughs> Before you shake your head, don't forget the precedent of John Major and Edwina Curry. Six. As for the referendum idea, it is one we have seen before. It was popular among a certain class of writer with, shall we, shall we say, uh, strong fantasies back in the 1990s, though we have no issue with this. However, the subsequent descent into farce, laced with horror, presented in your description of Britain approaching the exit from the EU, takes the reader beyond counterfactual fiction and firmly into the realms of tragicomic fantasy. <laughs> it beggars belief that any government would A, fail to plan almost at all for departure, <laughs> and B, cycle your Chris Grayling character through so many successive failures. <laughs> Though, personally, I loved the ferry company with no ferries, very Lewis Carroll. <laughs> We'd suggest, therefore, that you inject more realism here and tone down some of the more lurid stuff, like stockpiling of medicines, the forced introduction of chlorinated chicken and the annihilation of the automotive sector. Seven. Regarding the multiple votes on her deal... Our constitutional expert is adamant that May wouldn't be able to bring the vote back once, let alone three times, so please scratch that. Something dating back to the early 17th century, apparently. Eight. Finally. We Jacob Rees-Mogg. He's an obscure and harmless, if eccentric, old cove that I knew at university. Why does he feature so prominently here? Do you hold a grudge? It looks a bit shabby, so again, we'd suggest you revise. In summary, then, we would love to print your submission, subject to the changes proposed above. Please also provide a short biography of no more than 100 words to accompany your story, ideally with a recent photograph. I look forward to hearing from you soon. Yours sincerely, I.G. Fawcett, Editor, Counterfiction Magazine. Oh, P.S. One last thing. We'll be hosting a 25th anniversary reception at the Dorchester on the 15th of May to launch this edition. I'm sure you'll make every effort to attend. Please do RSVP before the 20th. We're rather excited to be expecting Sir Boris to say a few words. His recent Nobel Prize has given him quite the taste for being a literary lion. And it's a rare privilege to get the President of the European Council. <laughs> drinks before the curtain rose probably forgot that this is downstairs at the Phoenix and we don't even have a curtain. Uh, never mind. Uh, you have 15 minutes to revoke as many articles as you can. There will be no extension. Hello again! And welcome back after the interval. It's time for the infamous Flies League book quiz. Katie's going to introduce the books for us. I am indeed. Uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, we've got four fabulous books for your reading pleasure. They range from thrillers to historical fiction to strange, magical explorations of the Native American history. Uh, one for every taste, I think. And picture books, too. Uh, Life or Death by Michael Robotham. I love this guy's books. Try this one, and you'll see why, says Lee Child. Anyone's a fan of Jack Reacher? 
Due to be released tomorrow, why escape today? It's a matter of life or death. Praise for life or death? One of the best thrillers you'll read this year, says the Financial Times. <laughs> and they know thrilling. So, that's your sort of thing. That's the sort of thing you'll like. Ace King Knave by Maria McCann. As you can probably guess from the antiquated dress on the cover, this is a piece of historical fiction. And Hilary Mantel, no slouch herself in historical fiction stakes, an exuberant revivification of grave robbers and gamblers. Hucksters and whores in 18th century London, like Hogarth, sprung to life. And finally, not finally, uh, penultimately, sorry, Black Hills by Dan Simmons. I am in awe of Dan Simmons, says Stephen King. Papa <laughs> Sharper. Black Hills is an American Indian shaman who, as a young boy at the Battle of Little Bighorn, believes he has taken the ghost of the dying General Custer into his body. Now read on. <laughs> With a premise like that. And this is our special. This is our special. Does anyone in the audience have kids? Is, wow. that, is it just me? If this is too good for kids. Before and after the melting ice cream. Before, after, after. Wait, where did the? Oh, before, after. And this is my favourite in the middle. This is the one that we've used for the publicity, which is why I felt I should buy the book. Before, during. <laughs> Brexit metaphor? No, surely not. After. So if you right. want that, be quick with a hand. Okay, so as per usual, it's dark. Uh, so if you think you know the answer, stick your hand in the air and yell, I think I know the answer. <laughs> Do you want to practice that one? You've really thought hard. <laughs> okay. One, two, three. I think I know the answer! That seems to work. That's All fine. Right. That's great, yeah. Okay, so, first question. Name the author whose prologue, published in 1485... I think I know the answer. Wow, okay. Chaucer. No, no. it's not the oh. right answer. Published in 1485, describes the 21 books to follow. The f oh. oh, at the back. Uh, no is not the right answer. Oh, come on, 15th The first scholars. book shall treat how Ufa Pendragon... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. oh yes! Thomas Mowry, more Yay! Thank God for the extra clues. <laughs> Which one would you like? Well, kids' book, obviously. Oh, hey. There we go. Sorry, everybody else. It snapped up. <laughs> Second question. Whose debut novel is... After me comes the flood, after which came Melmoth and the Essex Serpent. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah. it's yeah. correct. There we go. We've got to say, I think I know the answer, and then not go, oh, I think I know the answer, but how? But I don't. Forgotten. What Great. would you like? Historical. Historical one. Can I borrow yeah. it off you afterwards, please? Third question. To which urban Welsh novel is Skag Boys a prequel? I think I know the answer. You better. 
is correct. We have Black Hills to play for. Fourth and probably final question now. Which Chronicle of Narnia was published sixth but comes before The Lion, The Witch and The Wardrobe? Yes. It's correct! Yes. Very well done, everybody. Shall we crack on with the stories? Yeah. Right, let's open the book. The first story of the second part will be Last Rites by Jess Walsdale, read by David Miller. Jess lives in London, but very soon in Dublin, where she works in events management and drinks to... <laughs> and drinks too much coffee, and that's what happens when you drink too much coffee. She used to write reviews for the Irish music magazine goldenpleck.com, but criticising other people's work is never as much fun as creating your own. David is an actor, playwright, and founding member of Lions League. His stories, Worms, Beast, and Red, were read here and appear in Arachne Press anthologies, London Lies and Weird Lies, which are available on sale for a very reasonable £5. Plays, The Flood and Leaves, have been produced on the London stage along with many shorter pieces. Acting work includes the National's production of Consent at the Harold Pinto. David! Last Rites by Jess Worsdale. We were bowling down a Bahrain with Springsteen on the radio when we hit the cow. It was me and Kean and Rob in the back, Aiden driving and no one in the front because he said it'd be a distraction and besides, he needed the space for the suits. We'd always relied on Owen to protest this kind of behaviour and when no one said anything, I abruptly realised how cultish our friendship now was and wondered whether we'd ever be able to rebalance it. Still, it was cosy, the three of us sharing warm elbows and nips of whiskies like old ones on a park bench. Aidan drank nothing except peppermint tea, which he brought in a monogram flask with a self-conscious and challenging air about him that none of us rose to. A pink winter afternoon and the smudged grass and the hedgerows whipped by as we rolled west into the cowboy sunset. It had been Aidan's idea to drive. This time of year and the coaches were full of Midland shoppers on pilgrimage to the sales both ways along the M6. At this short notice it would be cheaper and anyway it wasn't often that all of us were back together so we might as well make the best of it. So. We're just in efficiency now, are we? muttered Rob, darkly. It takes a funeral to get him to book his flights back, and then can't be arsed to make proper plans, and then he turns up drinking some herbal shite. But he didn't really mind. We'd all scattered after college, and actually a three-hour journey in a tiny metal box punctuated by a chicken fillet roll at Apple Green Services wasn't a bad way to catch up on each other's lives. Kean was telling us about his new girlfriend. 
and uh, sometimes gone out and, and cheat, cheat out, and we all meet up for a few in Flannery's after. Just like college, sniffed Aidan. He often spoke expansively about his elite metropolitan nightlife, which was seemingly centred on museum elites that ended at nine. And anything where the adjective pop-up could be realistically applied. Dublin's grand, but it feels like everyone's just rotating around finite social experiences, like a deck of cards. You, you pull out a card, say, a night out or, or watching the rugby, and everyone knows exactly how the, the, the evening's going to play out, he would say, flapping his hands dismissively. But in London now, I, mean, I, I could be completely anonymous. I, I never do the same thing twice. I, I'm a different person every weekend. Just thinking about this constant pursuit of novelty made me feel exhausted. I watched the edges of the road tick past. The motorway traffic had been so bad that we'd pulled off shortly past, uh, shortly past uh, Banislaw to take uh, a maze of tiny roads across country, badly lit but twice as fast. We were a, a little glowing bubble in an inky sea until Aiden yelled and slammed on the brakes. There was a dense, wet thwack of impact, and we were all hurled forward. My mouth felt upholstery. It tasted aluminium. And then Kean's thin voice from somewhere in the footwell. Was that? What was that? We were a jumble of limbs, and the car smelled of spilt whiskey and sweat. I could see the shock of Aiden's face in the rear view mirror, bleached with a bright gash across the bridge of his nose. With shaking hands, we unbuckled seatbelts and staggered out onto the road where the air seemed solid and chewable. The cow lay on its side a metre or so in front of the bumper, matted tufts of bloody hair spotlit by the car headlights, like the star attraction in some gruesome circus. The scoop of its ribs shuddered up and down rapidly, and it released a convulsion of moaning which crescendoed in a loud cough. Crimson droplets spattered across the marl grey tarmac. Jesus! Aiden sucked shallow sips of air and went heavily against the car bonnet, a concertina of crumpled metal and rippled flesh. The cow blinked up at us absently, dairy milk eyes ringed with tears, spiked lashes. It came out of nowhere! He squinted through the gloom. There must be a field ahead or something, a gate there might be more than... It could have killed us! I can't believe it's, it's, it's still alive, says Cain weakly. That, that was some hit it took. Should, 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 should we call someone? We fished phones from pocket. No signal. I thought about the Mahonies who would be expecting us in an hour in their house full of radiators and affable yellow lamplight. I promised to be there to hold Hannah's hand. She was too young to really understand, but I knew that tonight would be the hardest. Back in the bunk bed of half-remembered sleepovers, gazing pale-eyed at the plastic galaxy on the ceiling and waiting for the dawn. They'd have to buy a child-sized black coat, especially. She wasn't my little sister, but uh, tonight we would all pretend. Maybe we, we could just leave it, I offered. I don't think it's got much longer. Are you joking, said Kim. We, we can't just leave it in the road there, I mean, waiting for its own life to seep away. What, what if they find out it was us? Dead right. Imagine my mom finding out about this, added Rob. I'd never live it down. 
stared at the cow, willing it to die, stretched out its short neck and thrashed against the concrete. Oh, God, make it stop, shouted Kim, wrenching his hoodie up over his eyes. Rob smirked at him. All right, Kim, get a, get a grip. It's only a cow, for Christ's sake. You know, you'll probably end up eating it at some stage. He poked one Adidas-clad toe at the animal and punched into his coach sleeves. Well, I guess the other option is uh, we uh, help it along a little bit. What? Said Aiden. You're not seriously suggesting Christ, Rob. And anyway, we just hit it at 40 kilometers an hour and didn't kill it. What we're going to do? I mean, what, bop it on the head with a rock? Come on. Kean shuffled his feet, kicking road dirt and possibly preparing some elaborate intervention. I went back to the car to retrieve what was left of the whiskey and stood in the disco flash of hazard lights, liquid burning my throat. Rob and Aiden were still arguing. The cow uh, gazed at them impassively. Rob pointed to the white painted boulders lining the side of the road. I'm just saying, if we use one of them, it's real heavy, we just knock it out and die without even noticing. Yeah, and the ISPCA would be right onto us, like, drop a fucking rock onto an innocent couch. Should they be too heavy to lift them? Not between four of us. Rob looked at me and Kane. We eyed at the boulders. The road fractured with an approaching sweep of headlights and widespread relief at adult intervention. The driver wound down his window, digesting the grisly still life of blood and burnished apprehension. He heaved himself out and crouched down, stroking the cow's long velvet nose and whispering reassurances. I've been looking for her. I know it wasn't your fault they got out. Stay here, I'll go get my gun. He drove off, shaking his head. We sat cross-legged around her flared nostrils. Executioners turned priests. Her breath varnished the night air. Should, uh, should, should, should we say something, ventured Kean. It's an awful way to go. Aiden went back to the car and fiddled with the radio, turning up the volume until a cascade of trembling strings and sopranos soared out around us. Kean nodded at him and smoothed the hair back from the cow's forehead with one hand. Her eyes eased shut. I solemnly decanted tiny capfuls of whiskey. A toast, offered Kean. To, to clean air and, and green fields, uh, milk uh, and buttercups. Uh, amen. He emptied the cap and stuck out his hand for a refill. May she rest in, in peace, Rob said. May her heaven be empty of roads and the Egypts who drive on them. Aiden threw the bottle cap at him and it bounced away into the glass. I think she had a good life. I said quietly, and at least the end will come quickly. No bad news, no hospitals, no chemo, just out like a candle. That's how I like it. We were all silent for a moment. Words hung heavily in the air between us over the hulk of the dying cow. Kean broke first. What do you think he, he would have done if he were here? Same as us, probably. 
Faffed around for a while, made a hash of things. Would have been all right in the end, though. You know, that's on for you. Always seemed to work out okay. That's why I. That's why I, that's why I never imagined. Did I think about it? All the time, Tom. All the time. We all took a sudden and individual interest in different slices of stars and hedges and the ground. A distant hum of the engine grew louder until the farmer appeared, this time in a large truck. All right, lads, he said. I'll take it from here. One by one, we said goodbye to the cow. Kim, Rob, Aidan, and I. We stroked her head and we wished her, wished her well. The farmer waited, engine running, eyes gleaming. As we drove away, we heard the crack of a shotgun and it spurred us on into the endless night. This is before. <laughs> that might be a little bit too tiny. There we go. This is Alpha. Our penultimate story of the evening is Olena's Scalpel by Alan Graham, read by Patsy Prince. Alan studied creative writing and economics at UEA and is still unsure which discipline relies on make-believe the most. You can read more of the stories online. Patsy trained at RADA and KCL. Recent film includes The Bad Nun, Mummy Reborn and Culture Shock. Theatre includes Voices from September 11th at the Old Vic and Swallows at OFS Theatre Oxford. She also co-hosted Open, a podcast on the women's radio station. Patsy is an ex-lawyer, ex-parliamentary candidate, and ex-hotelier. Now excelling at being a bad wife, drinking too much gin, and expanding her collection of millinery. Patsy! by Alan Graham. The envelope arrived at Alina's desk at 12.01 exactly. It had all the markings of important and urgent work. She opened it carefully and inside found a single photograph. It was an image taken just outside the Party Congress building. There were two men in the centre, seemingly overflowing with happiness at some glorious news. A banner above them declared the cause of their jubilation. Apparently, the nation had constructed a record number of tractors that year. The two men themselves she recognised instantly. One was the great leader the dear father of the nation. The other was Konstantin Rigorin, chief minister in a dozen departments. A note was also inside the envelope. 
It read simply, no more Gregorian. After reading this instruction, Alina walked over to the window and inspected the photograph anew in the bright light of day. It would be a challenging image to doctor, worthy of her talents. The shadow of the great leader fell across the left side of the unfortunate Gregorian, while his right side was complicated by the large number of medals he was wearing. Worst of all, the background was an iconic building, instantly recognisable across the country. It would not be possible to replace what would be removed from the image with just a generic wall. When facing a challenge, Alina liked to look at the large framed picture that hung above her desk. It was indubitably her masterpiece. Perhaps the single work that had most established her reputation. It depicted an international peace conference in a far-off, decadent capital. The great leader surrounded by cowering foreign rulers as a local crowd looked on in awe. It did not matter that an attack of gout and paranoia had meant that at the last minute the great leader had pulled out of even attending the peace conference. Olena's work had managed to place him right in the centre, taking full charge of the proceedings. Every aspect of the picture had had to be retouched or altered, and she felt she knew every face in that crowd, every background building and street in that far-off city. Whatever difficulties erasing Gregorian would pose, they were nothing to what she had previously achieved. So two minutes later, she was in the department's main studio. There, she took a photographic <coughs> copy of the image so perfectly that few could have told which was the original. She prepared an array of inks, shades of black and grey, that matched those in the photograph. From her jacket pocket, Olina produced a beautiful silver scalpel and began work on the original photograph. The tiniest sleek edge of the blade pricked the surface of the image as slowly and delicately she started to trace around the form of Gregory. She began to feel the resistance when the scalpel approached the outline of his constellation of medals. This was always the moment where the task got harder, when the figure in the picture finally realised what was happening. She sensed a squirming movement beneath the blade. No, you don't, she muttered under her breath and stared into the defiant black and white eyes of Gregorian, glaring from the photograph. You won't stop me. Obviously, she was not talking to the actual Gregorian. The exact fate of that once powerful statesman was unknown. But likely he was lying dead in the dark basement of a secret police building. Maybe by this point his lifeless corpse had already been flung into some anonymous furnace. No, this was the Gregorian of the image, the once eternal Gregorian captured for the ages. These two-dimensional versions never liked to be removed from what was meant to be their place in history. She pressed her thumb firmly over his face, 
and continued her incision. He never stopped struggling, making the task all the more tricky. But Olena knew that the key skills to success were the same, patience and a steady hand. Eventually, the tip of her scalpel found its way back to the precise point where she had started. Years ago, when she had first got this job, she'd felt pity for those she removed from official photographs. She'd obtained a large fish tank from a benevolent middle-aged woman who worked in acquisitions and started placing the unwanted two-dimensional people in there. Every morning, the first thing she did when she arrived at work was check on the tank, watching the recently, recently detached as they swam around. Just after removal, they would race about, driven by either anger or despair. As the days went by, they would gradually lose purpose and begin floating aimlessly. Eventually, they would fade away. Time had taught her that pity was pointless. If something had to be removed, better it was done swiftly and completely and never seen again. So when she lifted the struggling Gregorin from the photo, she dropped him in the nearby bowl filled with turpentine, acetone and benzene. For a split second, this Gregorin made one more wiggle of resistance before his whole body began to fizzle. Then he dissolved into nothing. Olena admired her handiwork. This was truly a job she was good at, worth the sacrifices it had taken to achieve. But this was only one part of the larger task. The scene setting outside an iconic building meant she would have to use a photograph of the same building taken from the exact same spot to fill in the Gregorian-shaped gap. The ideal camera for this was highly advanced and of considerable value to the state. Therefore, there was absolutely no way she'd be allowed to remove it from the building unaccompanied. A large, glowering man with a particularly hairy moustache was tasked with accompanying her and ensuring she didn't steal it. Then another near-identical, large, glowering man with an equally hairy moustache was assigned to keep an eye on the first man, just in case he stole it. Olena waited patiently for the bureaucracy to arrange this. However, when she, was when she was informed that a further meeting had been called to discuss whether a third security official could be requisitioned to keep an eye on the first and second men, Olena decided to take her chances. She quietly lifted the camera and slipped out of the building. The glorious low summer sun shone through the city as she made her way to the Party Congress building. The large poplar trees casting elongated shadows across the wide boulevards. As she crossed the bridge of glorious revolution, she saw a group of people moving on the riverbank ahead. An old man was playing a popular folk tune on a worn balalaika, and around him people had gathered to dance. Alina stopped on the bridge and looked down, carefully observing the gathering. She felt a detached alienation from the scene as she watched the dancers form themselves into couples wrapped in each other's arms. 
But then, Olena's eyes were drawn to a striking woman, clasped in the arms of a young man with an army haircut. Despite herself, she could not help but stare. As she watched, she imagined the movement of their dancing sliced into a long line of static images. She pictured all of these single frames, strung out one by one, each brief moment of time frozen. Olena pictured herself drawing the silver scalpel from her pocket and laboriously going through each image in turn, carving out the young soldier. Then, with her task completed, she imagined running those images back together, speeding them up like film in a projector, and until finally reality was restored. Only now, the pretty woman was dancing alone, her arms holding nothing but air, yet her joyful smile undiminished. Suddenly, the old man struck the wrong note and she was jolted out of her happy daydream. And at that moment, Olena felt a great lonely sadness and she hurried the rest of the way across the bridge. At the People's Congress, her misery was compounded by the discovery that the light was all wrong. The intensity and angles of the sunlight and shadows would not match the original. When the lighting didn't match, people might be unable to explain what was wrong with the doctor photo, but they would instinctively know it was unreal. She looked at the sky. Maybe if she waited a few hours, the sun would move into a position that might make a photo usable. So she stood, silent and still, outside the People's Congress with her camera, waiting. It didn't cross her mind that this might be illegal until the police turned up. Three uniformed men with cold, motionless faces informed her that such activity was forbidden without permission. They demanded her name, her address, and who she worked for. And when the guard with the smallest head, but the hairiest moustache, had returned from checking this information, their faces <coughs> became even colder. A missing camera had been reported. But they had dug up more than that. A life before she'd been re-educated at the corrective institution. A history she thought had gone forever a mental degeneracy she had excised from herself and watched fizzle away, so that she could become a good citizen, so that she could do this job. The guard with the largest head and the thinnest moustache looked up from his clipboard and slowly panned his eyes up and down her. Then he smiled a cold smile. Stepping forward, he informed her that there was another crime under investigation. Approaching the People's Congress in possession of unauthorised weaponry. And with a flourish, she stepped forward, reached into her pocket and removed her silver scalpel. Olena felt like the world in front of her and the world behind her had suddenly rushed together, trapping her in this moment as if between two panes of glass. She panicked and jerkily tried to move, and to her surprise, she did. The three security men, it seemed, were not so lucky. They stood in front of her, trapped and motionless. One caught at the very moment of saying something, mouth frozen just before a sound could emerge. She hesitated, then walked up to them. She plucked her scalpel from the guard's clenched hand, he wobbled, but his posture remained unchanged. 
not knowing what else to do, she waited to see if they'd start moving again. As she waited, a small crowd of passers-by gathered, observing the men. <coughs> Such fine discipline, one remarked. It's a test, declared another, to see what we do if we think the security can't move. If they want proof, we'll behave. Let's show them, a man shouted proudly, and the crowd all began obediently to stand and watch over the frozen soldiers. All except Olina. This mob in front of the building meant there was no chance of her getting her shot. She slunk back to her place of work, where an angry bureaucrat shouted at her for taking a camera, for which she would have to fill in several lengthy forms, and then promise not to do it again, for which there were more forms. Plus, they had become aware of her previous mental disease, and that meant they had to revise her security status, requiring the completion of still more forms. And she wouldn't be allowed to return home until every single one had been completed. After six hours and 17 forms, Olina decided she'd had enough. She returned to her office and stood in front of her masterpiece. She took out her scalpel and carefully and patiently she began to trace the outline of her own body. It was surprisingly swift work. Men had often told her she had an uninteresting figure. And before the final rays of sunshine disappeared over the horizon, she was gone. Nobody else in the department ever looked at the photos on the walls. So nobody spotted the extra figure in the crowd at an international peace conference in a far-off decadent capital. And nobody noticed when, a week later, she had disappeared into the city. So before the final story of the evening, some notices. After this, we'll be back at the Phoenix, two months from now, for a cosmic infinity and beyond, celebrating the 50-year anniversary of One Small Step. Submissions are still open until the day after Star Wars Day, May the 5th. Writers do look online for details, as well as a cornucopia of recorded stories from previous events. And so, the final story of the evening will be The Poetry of Jenny by Gerard McCann, read by Zach Harrison. Gerard's work has been featured in The Moth, 3AM, and Litro, among other. In 2017, he was shortlisted for the Bridport Prize, and in 2018, he was long-listed for the Irish Book Awards Short Story of the Year. More of his work can be read online. Zach trained at St Mary's University and since graduating has worked on both stage and screen. His stage roles include Katorian, the Pillarman, Erdogan uh, <coughs> in the Erdogan Camp, and Demetrius in A Midsummer's Night's Dream. Film credits include Harry, the cunning linguist, 
I have to say that's quite curtain. In Shakespeare's Diaries, Jack in I Kissed a Boy, and Alex in Zed Positive. Zach! The Poetry of Jenny by Gerard McHugh. Jenny was still emoting about her poem. The poses of the others in the circle told me that her poem was important, vital even. Jenny had brought up her poem when talking about how she'd recently gone off anything that tasted of oranges. Because she was peeling one when, when she was alone in her house, and she'd a paper cut she'd forgotten about on the tip of her index finger. And as the, she pierced through the soft, squishy pulp, the sting of the juice entering her paper cut reminded her of the pain of arguing with her mother, and how she wished their relationship wasn't so dysfunctional, because she would never have another mother-daughter relationship in this life, as she'd chosen not to have children this time around. And she started thinking about the pain of childbirth and periods. That's the point where I zoned out and started thinking about how boring the night was and how I probably wouldn't be keeping in touch with these people after I went to university. My recounting of a funny sketch from the television the night before fell out of my mouth like a yolkless egg. None of this lot had seen the show. They were too busy thinking about important stuff, like Jenny's poetry, probably. The thought of them all squirrelled away in their bedrooms, all unknowingly in sync, wanking off to the idea of Jenny and her deep thoughts, made me laugh out loud. Well, more of a happy grunt than an actual laugh, but ooh, they'd heard it, and they were all staring at me. Jenny started to cry. Her face seemed to ask if I thought she was fake, and as much as I tried to keep my expression frozen, yeah, that's exactly what I thought of her. You! Bastard! Clinton shouted, punching me in the mouth. In that split second as my head recoiled, I figured I should lay down on the ground and roll about as if that had just really hurt. I could quite easily kick the shite out of Clinton, but nobody here was on my side. Pretty Jenny the Poet was everyone's favourite, the glue, or some other sticky substance that held our little group together. I bit down hard on my lip to make sure it bled. Now, much as Clinton had just exposed his love pangs for Jenny, or my Genevieve, as he often called her, he'd also shown a violent streak, which this lot did not tolerate. Gavin and Amon, seizing their chance to move up a rung on the Jenny ladder, led him to the hall to lecture him on non-violence. I moved to the kitchen to splash my face with cold water. Handfuls of it hit my skin and fell back down over the dishes I hadn't bothered taking out of the sink yet. Little diluted drops of my blood ran over the cups and saucers, most of it disappearing undetected down the plug hole, but some of it remained, also undetected. Maybe it would dry into the crockery, so that some small part of me would live on in this house, meeting the family at mealtimes, or over a cup of coffee intended for a solitary moment. Maybe I should write poetry too. It took me a moment to realise that Jenny was standing right behind me. Oh, Sorry about that, I said, turning to her. Was it really that bad? she asked. She held her hand close to her face, as if she wanted to touch her mouth, or she maybe was signalling that my lip was still bleeding. I couldn't be sure. No, 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 I said hurriedly, reassuring her. The opposite. I just get nervous in the face of beauty. 
That's why I laughed. It just, it popped into my head, like, what's the worst thing I could do right now? You know, like, when you're in trouble at school. I'm still too immature to understand deep stuff, like poetry. Jenny took off her scarf and wet the end of it under the tap. She wrung it out and started dabbing at my lip. Does it hurt? She asked. A little. Not anymore, really, I said, letting her continue. She smiled. Her expression completely changed, as if my approval had some sort of intense power over her. Maybe she fancied me. Or maybe all that make-himself-conscious stuff from pulling websites actually works. You see, I never believed it before. I would love to read your poem, I said. My mum's a dick. And I don't get on with my dad. I'd fight him, but violence is not the answer, I said, nodding towards the hallway, where Clinton could be heard protesting, explaining how they are all being so harsh. I nodded. I turned around to Jenny. She was almost drooling. Would you mind if I put you in a poem, she asked. Jenny, I would be honoured. I said, leaning in and kissing her. It was going so well, but then my nerve failed. I'm sorry, I said, pulling away. Don't be, she said, leaning in to kiss me. Now, if Jenny did write a poem about me, she never showed me it, and I never admitted that her poetry was crap. We didn't see much of the rest of the group after that night. Jenny and I spent a perfect summer together. Then we split and went to different universities. We tried making it work long distance, but she went and cheated on me around the same time as I was thinking about cheating on her. So we can't really blame the girl. I still acted hard done by though, just to get some sympathy off the chicks around halls that I wanted to screw. Now that I'm older, I have had no contact with Jenny. I haven't even stalked her on Facebook. But I don't regret our time together. I've never forgotten her. I also didn't forget Clinton punching me in the mouth. When I came home from university that first Christmas, I bumped into him at the grouse. He came up to me all half-cut and threw a big meaty arm around my shoulder, asking me how university was working out. He didn't mention Jenny, but I got the feeling he knew we'd broken up. A week after I split with her, Amon emailed me. First time since the party. He didn't mention Jenny, but his timing was just a little bit too close to be a coincidence. I bet he emailed her too doing the whole good-friend thing, like a bottom feeder. Now, waiting for Clinton to mention Jenny was burning a hole in my pocket, so I volunteered it. He acted surprised, but his acting wasn't up to much. I'd never known Clinton to have a girlfriend, but if he'd been the one to break up with Jenny, his conversation would have been a hagiography of his Genevieve's poetic soul and the deep insights they shared, exploring philosophy in late-night cafes, only for them to be driven apart by the crude side of beauty, or something equally wanky to do with soulmates and the like. Now, whatever his imaginary Jenny would have done, the one I went out with saw something a little bit different in the men she dated. You know, I don't think we would have gotten together if you hadn't punched me, I said. Forgot I did that, he said. I'm sorry, like. Not sorry enough, I said. And that's when I kicked the shite out of him.
you, Zach. And with that final turn of a page, our evening is at an end. We hope you remain for the after-after party, but if you need to lex it, now is the time for one last massive round of applause for all of our amazing authors and our spectacularly brilliant actors. Good night. <laughs>